Hello and welcome to this special World at Work episode of Ashurst Legal Outlook. My name is Stephen Woodbury. I'm the Global Practice Head of Ashurst's Employment Group. In this episode, I will be speaking to my Ashurst employment colleagues across the globe to discuss the current COVID-19 vaccine rollout. And in doing so, we will look at the differences between jurisdictions, the issues which have arisen and how these are being managed. And I'm delighted to have joining me a number of partners from our global employment team. Crowley Woodford from London, who also leads our European employment practice. Uriel Pariente, who heads up our Paris team. Dr. Andreas Morishat, who leads our employment, IT, data protection and compliance practice out of Frankfurt in Germany. And Diana Rodriguez Redondo, our partner in charge of our Madrid employment practice. Welcome to all of you and thank you for joining me. So let's get started and I hope you enjoy the discussion. Just a short recap, it seems extraordinary to think that only a little over 12 months ago, the world was on the edge of a global pandemic, which would change almost every feature of our lives, personal and work, and of course, from a health perspective. With governments and businesses having to react and deal with the impacts of the spread of the virus on the run, with no guidebook or precedent to follow, at least in terms of the scale of what we were witnessing. So it's not surprising that the level of anticipation of a vaccine becoming available grew throughout the course of 2020, such that when it finally arrived in late 2020, the expectation was high that the rollout would be speedy, efficient and seamless. Well, we're about to hear that the experience to date has been mixed across different countries, as has been the approach to the rollout and impacts on the workplace. But there are some common features which will be touched on. Fortunately, the major vaccines to date are proving to be both safe and very effective. Most programs are being managed by governments, uh, with higher risk groups being vaccinated first, including the elderly and health and aged care workers. But the delegation of government responsibility for coordinating vaccination programs and then who can actually administer the vaccine, that is where you can get it and from whom varies between countries. And we'll hear a bit more about that. Whether vaccination is mandatory or not, of course, is something that most governments are steering clear of, some leaving it to employers to manage, others actually stating that employers cannot make it mandatory. But all governments are encouraging and facilitating access to vaccinations to ensure that the numbers are as high as they possibly can be. The star performers to date include Israel, which hosted the pilot program for the Pfizer vaccine. Chile is well advanced and the United States uh, seems to have led the pack in every way through this pandemic, both in cases and now vaccinations as well. Now we'll come to our panel in a moment, but just briefly I'll touch on the position in Asia and Australia. The Asian rollout has steadily been increasing, led by China and India, both of which are producing vaccines locally. They're also supplying to nearby countries as well. So other countries are coming along and Singapore is making solid progress, as is the Philippines. And they're not experiencing too many issues, noting that in Asia, the experience of responding to and managing a viral infection and various waves of it has been greater than other parts of the world after SARS and MERS, etc. in the last decade or so. In Australia, the vaccination program has only just started and is some way behind other countries. Australia has benefited from waiting and watching how things have unfolded elsewhere in the world. So that's the position briefly in Asia and in Australia. Let's do a walk around Europe and I'll start with Crowley in London. I'm not sure Crowley, uh, whether I can call you from Europe now, uh, but that's a different topic. We're uh, all hearing good things out of the UK. Should we believe the hype? Uh, thanks, Stephen. Uh, well, yes, I think you should actually. The vaccine rollout in the UK has so far, I think, been a roaring success. Just over 22 million people have had their first dose of the vaccine, and over a million people have had their second dose. And the UK strategy is clearly to protect as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. 
And they've done this primarily by leaving a 12 week gap between the first and second dose of the vaccine. Vaccines are being given according to a priority list developed by the government. As you've already mentioned, Stephen, this is based on age and underlying health conditions. And in the UK, we're moving speedily down that list. Uh, we're on track to meet the UK's target date of the end of July to offer a first jab to all adults over the age of 18. In order to achieve uh, that target, our Chancellor, Richie Sunak, in the UK budget last Wednesday, announced an eye-watering extra £1.65 billion and will make that available to help the vaccine rollout. The UK's uh, vaccine minister, Nadim Zahawi, uh, has confirmed that March will be a very big month for the vaccine rollout in the UK. This is primarily because the groups who were first vaccinated in January are now due their second dose. And the programme rollout for those first jabs is continuing to pick up speed. Finally, it's probably worth mentioning that the UK's Independent Expert Advisory Committee, which is advising on the vaccination programme, has recently confirmed that the rollout in the UK uh, will continue to be age-based and that occupations such as teachers and transport workers, where there's been a lot of lobbying for them to be prioritised, uh, will in fact not be, and they continue with that age-based approach. Thanks, Crowley. And, and just in terms of the availability of the vaccine and the, the remarkable success, is the vaccine readily available in the community? Do you have to go through a doctor, for example, or how are people able to access the vaccine in, in the UK? I guess the UK in particular is well suited for this type of massive project rollout of, of a, from a healthcare perspective because we have the NHS, which is a, a natural framework for that. But in addition, the government, as well as using hospitals, have set up core centres, turning stadiums and race courses into vaccination, massive vaccination centres. And they're also tapping into more localised vaccination centres through the major pharmacies. So that there are plenty of facilities and also localised engagement to ensure that the, the vaccine is distributed as fast as possible. Very, very good. Let's jump over the channel or through the tunnel to, to Paris and Muriel. Uh, how is Paris and France faring? Let's not compare you to the UK. Let's just hear how, how France is going. No, because maybe we are seen in Europe. That's, that's maybe the point. <laughs> but yes, we are not doing very well, to be honest. There is also in France the same situation as in uh, London and in England. The vaccination has made by on priorities groups. And at the moment, COVID-19 vaccination is only open to people over the age of 75, people over the age of 50 with comorbidities, people who are particularly vulnerable due to serious pathologies and health professionals. Just to give you some numbers, as of today, 4 million people have been vaccinated in France, which represents, I can say, um, almost 6% of the population. And 2 million people, 2 million people have already received the second dose. 
So the situation is not really good, but uh, two new measures have been taken by the government recently, and I guess this measure will improve uh, the situation. First of all, as of February 25, occupational health services are also able, able to administrate COVID-19 vaccine to employees from 50 to 64 years old presenting comorbidities. In this regard, uh, employers should inform all employees of this possibility, and not only employees who met the requirement, as medical confidentiality prevents the employer from accessing such information, which is really important in France. Meaning that voluntary employees must then get in touch with occupational health services being pointing out again that the process must ensure the confidentiality of medical data. Therefore, the employer cannot learn which employee has or has not been vaccinated. And again, the situation is different from other countries. Just one point regarding this measure. I've been in touch with one of my clients this morning, uh, and she said to me that uh, for the moment, it was very, very difficult to get an employment with the occupational services, they are still wait, waiting for the answer. So I'm not sure it's really working, but I guess it will be in the future months. And the second measure, uh, which has been taken by the government here to speed up the vaccination rollout, is from a decree issued last Friday, which authorized pharmacists to administrate the vaccine and they should receive uh, the vaccine dose on March 15. So this is two important measures. Uh, the government said that normally in July, more than three, uh, 30 million of the population will be vaccinated. I don't know. Let's see. Thanks, Muriel. Uh, yes, it seems as though France is, is moving steadily, slowly but steadily, uh, hopefully towards better vaccination numbers. And Andreas, let's turn over to Germany. Uh, is the usual German efficiency coming to bear in relation to your rollout? Uh, thanks, Stephen. I have to say not quite, actually. Uh, unfortunately, I guess the situation is similar as in France. So the public uh, opinion is actually quite unhappy about the vaccination process so far, which is perceived to be, well, put it mildly, fairly slow compared to uh, some other countries, uh, you know, avoiding to look across the channel uh, where the grass is much greener in the UK. So we've started uh, in December last year. Uh, vaccinations are being carried out uh, under the authority of each of the 16 federal states. Um, so there's also differences between the states in Germany in respect of efficiency. We've vaccinated about uh, five and a half million people, approximately six and a half percent of the population. So similar to France, um, actually, and similar to most uh, of the EU member states because they receive the vaccine based on distributions by the EU largely so far. We have regards the order of vaccinations, also a structured process very similar to France with uh, three priority groups based on uh, age health risks and uh, certain job exposure risks. At the moment, we're still working our way through the uh, highest priority group, which uh, includes people over the age of 80, medical staff and other critical 
professionals. Now to end uh, on a bit more upbeat uh, note, um, we are all hoping that the process will become much quicker. As of 1st of April, uh, local doctors and company doctors will be permitted to do the vaccinations as well and vaccine will be delivered uh, through the normal channels to our local doctors. So that should help a lot. And our government has promised that the latest in April, we will be up to 10 million vaccinations per week which sounds good, and we'll see where that will be going, whether the efficiency is back or not. Thanks, Andreas. I'm not sure if this is uh, an area to overpromise on, but we'll see, see how Germany goes with interest. Let's turn down to Diana in Madrid and Spain, which uh, was one of the first countries in Europe really to start getting a lot of cases. Diana, how have the Spanish government been handling the vaccine rollout? Well, I would say that's similar to Germany and, and France. We are well, uh, people would say that not very good, but I have to say that still we are progressing. So vaccination strategy follows three stages in Spain. Stage one, uh, to residents and staff in early care facilities, frontline health professionals and people with severe disabled, and this stage has been completed. Now we are in stage two with people over 80 years old second line health staff, social workers, and then it will go with people between 70, 79, going down until 45 to 55. Stage three, we know that it exists, but it, it's still to be announced, so we, we, we do not, uh, what is it about? As I say, now we are with uh, people over 80 years old being vaccinated. AstraZeneca's vaccine is given to uh, healthcare workers, prison workers, and police, firefighters, and teachers under 56 years old because it has to be approved uh, for uh, people older than uh, 56 years old in Spain. And so the next groups to be vaccinated with Pfizer and Moderna will be people from between 70 and 79 years old. And the next group with AstraZeneca will be people from between 45 and 50 years old where I am, so I hopefully will be vaccinated soon. Uh, registration is not required to access the vaccine, so it is the health service who will contact the people to, to be vaccinated uh, following the, the established order of prioritization. I have to say that my dad got his call today, so he will be vaccinated next week, and, and we are really happy for that. So as, as of today, 4.5 million people have been vaccinated, of whom 1.4 million have already received the, the second dose. Thanks, Diana. That sounds like things are progressing relatively smoothly and orderly in Spain, which is good Good to hear. One of the issues from an employment context, obviously, that has been arising and is of interest, obviously, to employers is whether or not people can be compulsorily required to vaccinate. So whether it's mandatory or not, or whether because of work requirements, employees can be required to vaccinate. Uh, and Diana, I, I just thought it'd be useful to maybe find out through Spain, and particularly with the European Convention on Human Rights, as to how that issue is being managed in Spain. So whether or not it's compulsory or an employer can require people to get vaccinated. Uh, vaccination in Spain is not mandatory and neither is COVID-19 vaccine. 
However, there are some exceptional situations in which public authorities may impose uh, compulsory vaccination. One of these exceptional situations could be in case of an epidemic where, where there is a collective risk uh, to, to public health. Actually, there are precedents in Spain as in 1921 and 1944, vaccination against smallpox and diphtheria were implemented on a, com a compulsory basis. Uh, in this case, this obligatory nature should be necessarily approved by law. And I have to say that this is not a peaceful question, as there are certain renowned jurists who understand that making vaccination obligatory will be contrary to the Spanish constitution. Uh, so far, it is not obligatory in, in Spain. As far as compatibility with the European Convention of Human Rights is concerned, it is a balance between the right to privacy which is guaranteed by Article 8 of the Convention, and, and the protection of, of public health, on, on the other hand. So as early as in 1984, the European Commission of Human Rights stressed that the obligation to undergo medical treatment or vaccination on the pain of penalty may constitute an interference with the right to respect for private life. But at the same time, such interference may be permissible under same article point two, when it is carried out in accordance with the law and is necessary in a democratic society in the interest of public safety for the protection of health. So the European Court of Human Rights uses two criteria to assess the necessity of such interference in a democratic society. One, public health consideration requiring the control of the spread of infection diseases, and two, the assessment of whether the necessary precautions have been taken with regard to the appropriateness of the vaccination for the individual case in question. For sure, the extraordinary situation caused by the outbreak of the pandemic could be qualified as a public health considerations requiring control of the spread of, of infection disease. Uh, however, it is in any case necessary to assess whether the legitimate objective of public health protection can be achieved by less intrusive means. For instance, with the compulsory vaccination only of a specific age group. And in any case, as I said, it is also necessary to carry out a prior analysis of the suitability of vaccines for each individual. But yes, under these premises, uh, I must conclude that the compulsory vaccination measure would indeed be compatible with the European Convention of Human Rights. Yeah, thanks, Diana. That's that's really interesting, and obviously those those principles apply across Europe. But uh, obviously, most countries in the world who have similar legislative bases for privacy, etc., will obviously be interested in the approach that's being taken in Europe. And for employers, obviously, this is a critical issue. Uh, allied with this is actually the privacy considerations. So it's one thing to be able to say to an employee, "Yes, we would require you to get vaccinated for health reasons related to your job." But then there's a separate question necessarily as to whether or not we can get access to the information, the data that might support as to whether or not someone has actually been vaccinated. And Andreas, from your perspective, considering the GDPR considerations employers need to keep in mind, how should they approach managing these? Yeah, um, I mean, I guess it's, it's fair to say that COVID has tested the boundaries of our traditional GDPR concepts uh, and in, in some respects, actually uh, quite unusual standards have been applied to come to practical results here. 
take a look at, at a couple of highlights uh, and start with uh, simple but not so simple basics. So generally any information collected in connection with uh, COVID, which allows to identify a specific employee directly or indirectly, such as COVID test date, contact persons uh, an individual has had, travel behavior and so on, is uh, obviously personal data. However, it's, it's uh, not uh, so easy to say that all COVID data is also sensitive data. Uh, actually, only data which directly relates to a COVID diagnosis or certain COVID symptoms, such as um, body temperature, for example. That type of data is health-related data and therefore subject to sp special protection under the GDPR. On the other hand, information about a negative test result is not health data. As an employer, obviously, we have to differentiate between the two categories, and that has practical, quite severe practical impacts. We'll get to that uh, in a minute. So, Stephen, you were raising the issue of, of collecting the data. So employees, um, employers may require employees to disclose if they are infected. They may also ask them if they've been in contact with an infected person or, or traveled to a risk area. That already is an exception to the fundamental data protection concept that employees are not required to disclose specific diagnosis or illness symptoms to their employer. But employers, on the other hand, must keep the identity of uh, employees who have disclosed to be infected confidential. Exemptions would only apply if uh, the specific disclosure is required to protect others. For example, if an employee must be informed to have direct contact with an infected employee and they can easily derive from the information who the individual is. You can't help it. So in that case, that indirect disclosure is permitted, but you can't in a targeted way disclose the identity of infected employees. Further, uh, employees are not required to tell their employer if they belong to a risk group, if they uh, tell their employer to make sure that you know, they, they are protected. The employer uh, may process the data, but um, employees are not required to disclose to their employer if they have been vaccinated. So the information available to employers can actually be quite limited where employees determine to remain silent. Specific measures which uh, directly interfere with an individual's uh, freedoms, like measurement of body temperatures, or interviews asking about specific symptoms are not permitted across the board. They are permitted in specific uh, working environments like uh, close contact situations or working environments. But then again, if you do measure body temperature as an employer where you are permitted to do so, you are then not permitted to record and process the actual temperature data or other interview data. You, you can, of course, take the appropriate measures, such as sending the people with higher or increased body temperature home. And you may also record the related data, that indirect data that, that you have sent an employee home. But do not retain the actual uh, measurement uh, data in respect of temperature. So it is a bit of a jungle to navigate uh, through. So 
uh, I guess in summary, it's fair to say that that outside of the, the general guardrails, there remain many open questions for the future. And uh, I have to say, um, we live in interesting times for employment lawyers. <laughs> yes, I, I heartily agree with that, Andreas. Thank you for that. Yes, I, I think this is a tricky area and one which will, I think, throw up a lot of surprises and, and questions as we as we move forward, particularly as the vaccination moves towards a, what the government would hope would be realistic targets and possibly some employees and some people just uh, are not getting vaccinated, which moves us on to the next topic, Muriel, which is at the workplace, how are the social and economic committees, the old work councils dealing with or being involved in this process or are, are they at all? It's really a good question and you will be surprised of the answer because as of today social and economic committees are not really responding to the vaccination rollout. Indeed as I told you before employers latitude with regard to COVID is nerfed is very very limited. An employer cannot mandate vaccination and cannot either organize vaccination campaigns at the moment. As such, social and economic committees do not have a substantial role to play in COVID-19 vaccination, which is beyond their scope of competence, as long as it remains external to companies. So I can answer the question very clearly, which as you know, it's not always the case. Uh, we have always the question from our client, do we need, do we have to inform, do we have to consult our social economic committees on several issues? But here the, the answer is very clear. At the moment, social and economic committees are not consulted on the vaccination rollout. However, things are changing. And because employers can from now inform their employees of the possibility to get vaccinated by the occupational health services, I assume it should be considered to involve SEC in a preventive and incentive role. And I'm sure knowing how the SEC is working in France, that they will ask for that. So I can say for the moment, the situation is clear, but I guess maybe it's a little bit soon. And I will say also like Andreas, we should have a lot of issues regarding this point in the future. Thanks, Muriel. Yes, I, and I agree. And I think that will be the case in a number of countries, particularly where there's a, a strong union presence and particularly in some industries or sectors where the employers will be very concerned to make sure that their businesses can operate as efficiently as possible and that might require most if not all employees to be vaccinated and then there's obviously that potential for for questions which the union secs might wish to to play a role in which sort of then leads on to another topic uh crowley which is just in relation to the the rollout of the vaccine and we've already seen some conjecture just um in the in the press around not only whether or not people might be forced to or mandatorily required to get vaccinated, but also the circumstances in which people might refuse to be vaccinated and discrimination issues which potentially arise in relation to how the rollouts are occurring. So I was wondering if you could just comment on that, please. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I do think that uh, discrimination issues could arise if employers want to make vaccinations compulsory for existing employees, normally as a precondition for them returning to work. If employers do go down this route, then employees who refuse to be vaccinated and have protected characteristics under the UK's Equality Act, they could potentially bring discrimination claims. 
And if this happens, then any employer that adopts that approach would have to objectively justify its compulsory vaccination policy. For example, uh, employees who have medical conditions such as severe allergies or immune disorders or even a fear of needles may refuse to be vaccinated. And if their particular medical condition amounts to a disability in law, then they're going to have the protection of the UK's disability discrimination laws. Employees may also object to having the vaccine on religious grounds. Uh, this could be either in principle or because the vaccine's been prepared in a way which breaches particular tenets of their religion. And the list, of course, could, could go on and extend, for example, to uh, vegans who might also object to the vaccine if it's been prepared using animal-based products. Certainly, there has not yet been a case in the UK on whether anti-vaccine principles in themselves are a protected belief. I would have thought that this is going to be unlikely, but of course, at this stage, you can't, can't rule anything out. Basically, I think in my experience so far, it's that employers are taking the lead from the government and they're not making the jab compulsory. So discriminations are not arising in, in practice at the moment. It's certainly an area of interest uh, to employers, and we're getting lots of inquiries about that. But ultimately, employers are keen to ensure that their workforces are protected. But at the moment, they're largely adopting the approach of support, information and encouragement uh, to have the vaccine. Thanks, Crowley. Yeah, I, and I think that um, that position seems to be sort of common across a number of countries. In Australia, Similarly, the authorities, the government, have not made the vaccination compulsory. I suspect that's as much for political reasons as, as any others. But really what they've done is leave it to employers to work through the, the issue. So we then fall back to our effectively our common law position, which is that unless it's a reasonable and lawful direction, which will obviously be a relatively limited circumstance in this case, then employers ordinarily would not be able to require an employee to be vaccinated. Uh, it, it'll be interesting, I think, to see where the bounds of that are. So we have had clients, in the, particularly in the healthcare and aged care sectors, where vaccinations are required. And obviously there you could see that there would be a sensible justification for that. I think where the boundary might be interesting in terms of the movement will be in other sectors where it might not necessarily be related to health considerations, but more related to economic or operational considerations. And obviously some of the sectors which have been hardest hit by the impacts of the pandemic, particularly retail, hospitality, travel, for example, airlines, et cetera, as to whether or not requirements that they might see um, would be appropriate to be put in place in relation to vaccinations might fall on the right side of the, of, of the law or, or not in terms of, of any challenge. So I suspect those things are still a, a short way away at the moment, because at the moment, the Certainly, the, the strong sentiment is for people to, to be vaccinated, but um, I think in every country there will be a, a, a number of people who, who are still uncertain or, or would not wish to get vaccinated, and as to whether or not that has flow-on implications for employment and, and their employers will no doubt be seen. So 
all of those issues I suspect are going to be cropping up in the, in the future. And obviously for employers, it's important for them to start thinking ahead and managing um, those contingencies now as to what their position might be, whether there are workarounds, for example, in relation to work that is performed and as to whether it can be performed in, in some other way without needing to be vaccinated, as we have already seen, obviously, through the last 12 months, a lot of, of different and variable working circumstances have been put in place. That has been a very interesting discussion. Certainly for me, I've learned a lot, but unfortunately our time has come to an end. So let me now thank our panellists, Diana, Muriel, Andreas and Crowley, uh, and to you, our audience, for listening. We hope you found it informative and interesting. You can hear more of Ashurst's podcasts, including our series examining AI by visiting ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. If you don't want to miss future episodes, you can even subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast platform. While you're there, please feel free to leave us a rating or review. But for now, my name is Stephen Woodbury, and on behalf of my co-panellists, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.